Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. He is a celebrated spiritual writer and sought-after speaker. A native of North Carolina, he is a graduate of Eastern University and Duke Divinity School. His newest book is Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. In it, he argues that just as Reconstruction after the Civil War worked to repair a desperately broken society, our compromised Christianity requires a spiritual reconstruction that undoes the injustices of the past. Jonathan shares his own story in the book. He traces his journey from the religion of the slaveholder to the Christianity of Christ. It's a journey that taught Jonathan that reconstructing the gospel requires facing the pain of the past and present from racial blindness to systemic abuses of power. It's a deep, moving, and important book, and we had a great conversation about it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Jonathan Wilson Hart's growth. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Good to be with you. You have written this great book, Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. And yeah, I remember as a kid, I would see these these commercials for Hair Club for Men. And the guy at the end said, I'm not just the president of Hair Club for Men. I'm also a client. (laughs) 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 They're such great, like, like 80s commercials, but like daytime television kind of commercials. But, you know, there's a sense in which that's the tone of your book. Mm. I mean, you're somebody that's actively involved in a struggle for racial justice and equality in in the United States. But you write as one who was deeply affected as a, as a son of the South. It was deeply affected by America's racial uh, original sin and its legacy. And, and you, do, you, you, you seem to not shy away from owning that. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I'd, I don't want to wash my hands uh, and pretend to be, you know, separate from any of what I'm writing about. I um, I was born into it. Um, I was loved and loved well by people who inherited it, and um, and I think it's, you know, my my longing to grapple with the legacy of slaveholder religion is really about finding my own freedom and and hoping and praying for freedom for uh, people like me who I love. Yeah, that comes through in the book. And I think that, that that seems to be a challenge, I think, about with people in histories that mm. are complicated, that people tend to either uh, sort of whitewash the history, right? Yeah. Or kind of reject it wholesale. And you try to hold this dialectically, right? I mean, you, you don't want to, you're trying to hold, to tell the whole story. Yeah. That's, that's, I remember, you know, uh, 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 Robert Jones, who runs uh, PPRI, the Polling, mm-hmm. public polling thing, he wrote this book, the the end of white America, white Protestant America, and he he says, you know, like he op- he he opens it with an obituary, it ends it with with a eulogy, and he says, you know, ministers who have preached funeral sermons, eulogies, know that there's this complex thing because you're often talking about somebody who's been very meaningful to one group of people there and they've been the source of deep alienation and pain for others and you have to deal with so i mean is that sort of what it's like writing about your own story your own family your own history that 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 is both of these things yeah uh i mean your example is uh real concrete and personal for me because uh i closed the book with a letter to my grandfather and my son um i knew i had to write the book when i was sitting at easter dinner with the two of them 
uh, at my parents' house the spring that uh, you know Trump was just a candidate among others uh, of 2016. And, and your grandfather voted. You talk in the book that your your pop up is pa right? He yeah. voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. So we were sitting there at dinner, and uh, my son, who's African American, caught on to the fact that uh, Pa might vote for this guy, and he he asked him. He said, "Really? Like you'd really vote for him?" Um, and uh, you know, Pa kind of hedged a little bit and said, "Well, you know, I'm not sure. Sometimes politicians say things they don't really mean." And uh, my son said, "Yeah, but he's extreme." And the, I could see that there was just you know they. You know, he's known his grandpa his whole life. His grandpa loves him. He knows that, you know, they uh, know and love each other. But there was this chasm between them that uh, neither of them could really imagine where the other one was coming from. And uh, I realized that that's really the case for so many of us. So I, uh, you know, that that very personal um, divide is is there for me and was there for me throughout the book. So I closed the book with a letter to to my son and to that grandfather. And just uh, two weeks ago, I preached that grandfather's funeral. So I've you know been walking with him through the um, last days of his life over the last few months. And uh, yeah, deeply love him and um, am deeply grateful for so much that he gave me. And um, I know, and he knew that he... Um, was in many ways a a product of this slaveholder religion that I'm writing about. Um, He came with me on a freedom ride. I do these freedom rides through the South with groups to to really immerse people in Southern history. And uh, he came with me on one a few years ago. And uh, we we wrestled through it. You know, uh, these these are not easy things, but uh, I do think it being uh, a personal struggle is... uh, uh, is important for me because uh, it's also a public struggle, and we're we're all living it out in the public square right now. Um, but I, I don't think uh, we can simply take sides and demonize people when um, when it's people that we know and love. Yeah, it's interesting. This morning on cable news, I saw the mayor of New Orleans uh, interviewed. Yeah, who gave that great speech, you know, about taking down statues, and you just come out with a book and. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting because it, it 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 is we do need more nuanced voices, right? People that that, that really can paint a, a a a picture that's as complex as the reality. But it seems like that's just we're so bereft of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like most of the polarized stuff, you know, especially in the age of Trump. But I mean, Trump is probably more of a a symptom, right, that, than the illness itself. But it, it, it's hard to to get into the yeah. the the American original sin, it's complex workings out now. And then how to relate to like yourself, someone who's a white son of the South, how to relate to this complicated history. Right. Yeah. Well, this is where religion is so dangerous. Right. Um, truth of the matter is, if you look all over the world, um, religion is rarely the source of conflicts, but religion, um, I mean, the uh, great study on fundamentalism that was done at Notre Dame, really pointed this out in several conflicts. Uh, while religion isn't um, the source of most conflicts, it is an incredible catalyst in conflicts because religion is what can give people the conviction that um, that they're on God's side and that uh, what that, that gives you a faith that you can sustain in spite of the evidence. And um, uh, I think that makes it incredibly dangerous. So so that's, that's why I think um, understanding the way uh, 
the people who the people who came to defend uh, race-based slavery in the South um, and defend it over and against, you know, a faith-rooted movement that was trying to overcome it, abolitionism. Uh, they came to frame it in terms of a matter of faith. Um, it was God's will that this was happening, and that that's why. Um, that's why Frederick Douglass named this distinction between the Christianity of the slaveholder and the Christianity of Christ. He he saw that they were putting their faith in different things. And especially after the Civil War, when at least legally the question of slavery was settled with the 13th Amendment, um, the slaveholder religion doesn't go away, but rather uh, considers uh, itself to be in a kind of exile, to be living you know, to and so narrates the whole story of scripture and of Christian experience in terms of imagining that black political power is a kind of is a kind of corruption, is a kind of exile, and that uh, redemption. This is the word they actually used. Redemption means being saved from that. So, um, so the word that Christians have always used to name how Jesus saves us from our sin actually becomes the title for the movement to overthrow Reconstruction. And I think this is how um, this faith becomes central to uh, the movement of white supremacy in this country. Yeah, I think it's somebody wrote a profile of Mike Pence recently. They said that the scary thing isn't that Mike Pence believes in God, it's that he believes that God believes in him. And it sounds like that's what you're saying is yeah. dangerous about religion, right? It's not, yeah. it's not just that the slaveholders believe in God, but they think God believes in them and the white supremacy. Right, that's right. Yeah. And um, we forget this history to our peril because, um, you know, we're repeating it. I think that's um, so much of what I see in terms of the um, the unquestioning support for Donald Trump among white evangelicals in the current moment. Uh, I mean, you know, the polls, his his um, uh, support among, you know, all Americans is somewhere around 37, 38%. It's double that among white evangelicals. And uh, you have to ask the reason why. And um, clearly, you know, people are willing to believe in spite of the evidence. It's a matter of faith for these people of faith. And um, the reason I wrote the book is I, I, I think that slaveholder religion is the best explanation we have um, as to why not only, uh, you know, 81% of white evangelicals were willing to vote for the candidate who was endorsed by the KKK. Um, and again, not, not that they were self-consciously, um, uh, you know, doing it for racial reasons, but that being endorsed by the KKK did not disqualify this person uh, in their minds. Um, uh, not just that, but also that, uh, you know, a year later when um, clearly many uh, sisters and brothers of, of the faith, uh, who are also, uh, people of color and immigrants in this country, um, you know, are, are experiencing real and, um, and violent interruptions in their life because of policies that have been, uh, implemented by this president. These, these same people continue, uh, to support and believe in him. That's what I mean by believing in spite of the evidence. I think it, it does become, uh, a matter of faith, and you have to ask what kind of faith is sustaining that. I read a piece recently. I think it was in the New, in the New Republic or something, and, and the the author was saying that that for conservatives, that racism, that bigotry or discrimination is about intention, 
Yeah. Right. So if I intended to do something, yeah. you know, whereas that then it's it's racist. But but they said you know for liberals it tends to be discrimination or racism gets defined by outcomes. And so let's say a, a person votes to cut these programs in the Atlanta you know legislature or something, and it disproportionately affects African Americans and other people of color. Mm-hmm. But they might say, well, that's not race because I didn't mean, I did it because of a budget thing or because yeah. I don't think government should do this kind of thing right. it, it, so there's it, it's, it, it, it there seems to be a difficulty to make the leap for lots of white Americans right to from racism as intention to racism as systemic that like you don't even need to intend it right like the yeah. system will kind of just take care of itself all on its own yeah. right yeah yeah I mean I think it's a helpful distinction but I I, I don't want to make it about conservative versus liberal or about left versus right because frankly you know if you look at the long history um a hundred years ago it was democrats in the south who were using race to you know prop up white power and now it's republicans so for me it's not so much about the ideology of the parties as it is about um uh holding on to power uh frankly uh the crisis that we're witnessing in the united states has everything to do with demographic shifts that um, that are happening, uh, and it has to do with the fact that um, people with an incredible amount of money have uh, invested a great deal of that money um, into holding on to white power. Um, of course, they did that through the Republican Party because the Southern strategy turned the Republican Party into the party of white people in the South uh, after 1968. Um, but they would have been just as happy to do it through the Democratic Party. I mean, it's, it's, it's not really partisan. It's about power. And I think um, I think at the end of the day, that power is being used uh, uh, in ways that are hurting people. And as Christians, I think we have to uh, at some point ask whether our uh, whether our commitment to Jesus and Jesus's command that we love one another uh, is more important to us than our political ideology. Yeah, you mentioned a woman in the book, and her name is me. She an older African American woman, and she did some amazing things. Yeah, Anne Atwater. Yeah, Anne Atwater. Yeah, and and. and you say a lot of you know white evangelicals you knew white Christians were very moved by her story and wish they could befriend a Klan person and get involved in the redemption story. Mm-hmm. But you said no, you know what? None of those people ever asked her who they should vote for on the school board. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is where the rubber meets the road, right? I mean, so, like this is where it, 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 there are power dynamics that sometimes we don't even think about. So, so you know, for the person opposing the Klan member and, and being part of a redemption story, well, that that's moving, but. It's not as significant to think, well, okay, how would we redistribute the power here so yeah. that everybody's lives can flourish, yeah. not just and here's, the white majority? Here's the thing about white supremacy. White supremacy has never benefited most white people. Uh, the lie of white supremacy, and again, uh, as it was used by Southern Democrats and is now used by Republicans in the South and elsewhere, uh, was always about pitting poor white people against poor black people so they wouldn't come together in coalition. That's what Ann Atwater and her friend C.P. Ellis, who had been in the Klan, discovered. They realized when they were asked by the federal government to chair a process here in Durham to integrate the schools, they realized that their hatred for one another was actually um, making education worse for all of their kids, black and white, and that the only way to, uh, uh, to have better education in Durham was going to be to work together um, and to challenge the people who were in power 
who frankly just weren't willing to invest in in education for most kids um because you know as, as long as their kids were doing all right they were happy for most kids in public schools to have a pretty poor education uh well that's that's one local story but that's really the story of america you know from bacon's rebellion up to the present like there's 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 always been the potential for a kind of radical democracy where poor folks would come together and really challenge the pretty consolidated wealth in this country. Um, and what we know is that that wealth has only further consolidated in recent decades. That you know there's this this gap between the richest and most people uh, is widening, and uh, as it widens, those people who have um, uh, ex- pretty exclusive uh, wealth and power at the top are investing that money in politics that are, that are designed to divide and conquer coalitions of people uh, who, frankly, have a lot in common, even though we don't share this story of race, which has been so dominant in American history. You begin the book with a really interesting story where you're going to this production, right, at this theater. Yeah. And a friend who's African American wants to wants to go right with his family, your family, and and it, it's it's a pretty nice theater, right? Where you know you, you mentioned that you know the seats, these balcony seats, you know, would be two hundred seventy five dollars when Hamilton comes to town, yeah. but 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 it's a Christmas production that some mega church put on, right? Right, right. and that's why it was free. And it, it, it seemed like the, the production just like it was at one point was incredibly moving, and then the whole experience soured. <laughs> Can you yeah. just tell that story? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I tell it because it's not immediately clear to most Christians um, uh, why something like this would be problematic. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a it's an evangelistic event, but that's what evangelicals do, right? We we proclaim good news. We want to share it with others. So, you know, it's a free concert, and there's Christmas music, and it's you know very diverse and all. But then the curtains close, and the the white preacher steps out on the stage and uh, and begins to preach his gospel, the gospel that you know he believes to be the only gospel, the true gospel. Um, and it's a gospel that, first of all, is individualized. It's all about your decision that will save your soul. And uh, and it's a gospel that, in his mind, is necessarily exclusionary. So the only way he can preach it is to, um, you know, in the course of saying the great good news is that you can make a choice today that you will be saved, uh, is to say that because you're being saved, all the Buddhists and the Muslims and everybody else are going to hell. Um, he he kind of has to say that, or he doesn't feel authentic to his message. And, um, and he does that, and then, you know, the thing that really struck me was after he does it, the curtains open back up and there's this, you know, music again. And, and, and all of a sudden the music leader, who's, you know, obviously now a worship leader is, uh, talking to all of us and calling us church, you know, church, I want you to sing with me, church. And, uh, and then he concludes by exhorting us to go out and share this good news that we've heard with everyone we know. And he says it, uh, in a way that I just thought was telling uh he says i want you to go out there and vomit jesus on someone and um <laughs> i, I kind of felt like vomiting uh, uh one of our african-american friends who had come with us actually bolted early in this because he, he saw where it was going um but but yeah i wanted to tell that story because um i think it in some ways it illustrates the tension right that um you know everybody involved in that production and frankly you know since the book came out last week, uh, I've had several conversations with that pastor and others from that church uh, who were quite taken aback that you know I had told this story. Uh, but 
who sincerely, you know, think that what they are doing is faithfulness to the gospel. And uh, what what I've tried to say is, look, I I understand that you're sincere in that, um, but but if you listen to how other people receive that, right? If you're if we're willing to just sit down and say, you know, why did the person bolt from the room uh, the minute they realized where this was going? Uh, I, I think we can begin to see that there's a history to that particular interpretation of the gospel. That as a matter of fact, uh, I think the best way to understand why the Southern Baptist Church proclaims a very personalistic uh, soul salvation is because when they were separating from other Baptists, when they were arguing against the abolitionists in the mid-19th century, Southern Baptists decided that it was a good thing that Africans were enslaved on plantations in the South because if they had died in pagan Africa, they would have gone to hell. But because they had been brought here and had the quote-unquote opportunity to hear this gospel, their souls were going to be saved and they would go to heaven. So that separation between one's soul and its ultimate destiny and the well-being of one's body and justice in the world uh, becomes central to uh, the understanding of, of the gospel in the argument for slavery. Um, now, people stopped making the argument, but they didn't stop reading the Bible that way, and they didn't stop understanding the gospel that way. And um, and that's what I was trying to say by telling that story. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you. To be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart. Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Michael Butera, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, and Andrew Stravitz. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You were a Senate page for Strom Thurmond. Yeah. That, I would say that's pretty like deep Southern credentials there. I mean, like it's sort of, no, you talk about that. You just tell the story of, you know, do, thinking this, Hey, I'm doing my Christian duty here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to impact the world, you know, yeah. society for Christ and this vocation. And, and you, you talk about seeing poor folks, panhandlers on the streets of DC. And, and as you're working and, and the, you recognize the stark contrast of these two worlds of DC. And you even say, you know, the first thing Strom Thurmond said to you, right, is be careful. This is a dangerous town. Yeah. <laughs> By which he meant black without having to say it. Right. 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 The code language was there, right? Yeah. The dog whistle was. So it's interesting to me. When, when did 
could you, when do, did your own awakening mm. to your own legacy happen? Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what, what was the formative, what, what do you think were some of the formative stages where you, you go from, you know, the guy who's working for Strom Thurmond to the guy that's going on Moral Mondays, you know, with, with Reverend Barber and people are getting arrested? I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. how does that guy become this guy? Well, I was loved into another way of seeing the world. I think that's um, that's why I believe in the radical love ethic of the church. Um, uh, Reverend Barber knew exactly who I was when I met him. Uh, I had just come back from paging in Thurman's office, uh, and yet um, he was willing to come to my home church when I invited him. He was willing to, you know, get to know my people, even though he was the human relations chair for the state and had therefore, you know investigated recent hate crimes in that county where I was from. He, he knew the place. He knew the Klan's activity there. Um, and he knew that some of the people in that church were probably still members of the Klan. Um, but he was willing to come and to love me. And um, uh, many, many other people have been willing to also. So, yeah, I... You know, there is slaveholder religion and there's the Christianity of Christ. And uh, I'm still a Christian because I was loved into uh, another way of being Christian by people who um, who were willing to love someone like me. They were willing to love their enemy in the way that Jesus calls us to. You, you've you spent a lot of your adult life working on on issues of white supremacy. And, and I love your term, how the American needs a reconstruction. American Christian needs a reconstruction yeah. for the slaveholder. I mean, it's, it's got it's got to be exhausting work because things, I mean, you, you know, you can point to certain progress, but but also it seems that our story off in the United States is, is one step forward, two steps back. Mm-hmm. Particularly, you know, you think of the, the, the powerful symbol of electing Barack Obama and then we're, which seemed like, okay, things you know we're going in a better direction and now it seems like things there's more it seems like animus his intention has increased along racial lines well the beautiful beautiful thing about being part of the prophetic movement for justice in this country is uh you know there are people who've been at this a long long time (laughs) and who and who uh and who know that you know uh uh, becoming the country we've never yet been may not even be something that uh, we'll see in our lifetime. And yet it's worth it because, uh, one, um, we've seen on the ground in real relationships, you know, in the beloved community that God makes possible that there is another way of being, right? And that that is real community and that is true joy. So, uh, you know, if you know that what you're doing is true and that it's possible, um, that's motivation to keep doing it. Uh, and also, um, I think, you know, King King's off quoted phrase that, um, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice is a way of naming that hope that, you know, even if, even if America never figures it out, uh, this thing that is true is the, the destiny of the universe it's the destiny of the cosmos you know it's what it's what god made us for so um you know i pray that america can become uh, a multi-ethnic democracy in a way we've never been because i know and love people here and i'd, I'd love to see it happen i don't know whether it will uh, but it's true even if we don't you know even if this whole thing melts down and um and falls apart uh because white people aren't willing to share power um it, it's still true that we would be a better country and we'd be a better human community 
uh, if we did learn to share our power. Hmm. You uh, say in the, in the book that struck by you said that there's that you invite people uh, that you that you say there's also been you know in addition to slaveholder religion there's been the Christianity of Christ inviting people and communities into fusion politics surprising friendships and inner healing so it's I mean it sounds like that that Reverend Barber was one of these surprising friends for you right that that, that who became a real brother to you um which could you say a little bit about about fusion politics and the inner healing stuff mm-hmm. like how does that how, how have you seen that play out in people's lives in the sort of journey for and struggle for justice. Yeah. Well, fusion politics, I frame in the book as an alternative to the racial politics that we've inherited, right? So people are people are kind of uh, raced into being uh, Republican or Democrat and then, you know, feel like they have to negotiate the world from within that. Fusion politics is about uh, the possibility of building coalitions that that aren't about party or about you know the racialization of partisan commitments, but about you know listening to the people who are impacted by injustices and asking uh, what kind of work could we do together in the public square that would, uh, for example, make health care available to everyone, or that would make public education available for all kids, or that would you know make a living wage possible so that um, so that people who work, you know, one or two jobs could afford to feed their families. So that um, um, that's what I mean by fusion politics, and that's really what we've seen all over this country in building this poor people's campaign over this past year. Um, I hope your listeners know that beginning on uh, Mother's Day of this year, uh, a poor people's campaign, which is a fusion coalition of groups in thirty states across this country, are going to begin taking direct action together at state houses and in the U.S. Congress. And I think that. You know, just my being able to be with those people, you know, black, white and brown, rich and poor, gay and straight uh, folks, who people of faith and people not of faith, but who are really coming together across lines of division to build a, a, a new kind of community that can pursue a moral agenda in the public square. Um, that's that's what I mean by fusion politics on the, on the inner healing side. I, I think that's a crucial part of this for people who we're taught to think of ourselves as white. Cause I think often when we, when we talk about racial justice or when we talk about, you know, issues of the public square, um, uh, white folks imagine those things as, uh, something that would benefit someone else. And, uh, it's often framed, you know, uh, as a zero sum game, right? So the only way someone else could benefit would be for, you know, you to have, less privilege or less power. Um, but, you know, I, I learned a lot from Vincent Harding, who used to ask white folks, uh, um, what kind of privilege is it to be the descendant of people who stole the land, stole the labor, uh, you know, raped people and uh, denied the children that were born of that rape? Uh, what kind of privilege is that really? Um, what has it done to white folks spiritually uh, to, uh, to, to to see the world this way and to assume the abuse of other people's bodies. Um, yeah, yeah. In the book, you talk about trauma theory a little bit. Yeah, and how, yeah. How, you, by necessity, right? Sl- the slaveholder religion takes a warfare mentality. You have to, right. you have to make uh, people. You have to make African Americans enemies, and and it's it's like centuries of trauma. Yeah. On a people group. Yeah. It's some of this way people have to heal from. There's a traumatic experience by de. Uh, by being a dehumanizer. Yeah. And you hear it, you hear it in people's sort of gut reaction when you ask about, um, you ask a basic question about, you know, the poverty that someone can see, uh, right in front of them, you know, 
in their neighborhood or on the street in their town. And uh, they're just these gut level reactions, you know, well, they're the undeserving poor or, you know, that person's trying to take from me. Um, It's um, that kind of, uh, I talk about in the book is the shriveled heart that we've passed down one generation to the next uh, that's had to sort of shut off empathy and just a capacity to connect with other human beings in order to justify a kind of way of seeing the world that would continue to you know, make our existence make sense. Um, I think that's made it incredibly difficult for white people to know the love of God. And um, that's the healing that, that I want to see. I, I want people to, to be able to know that they are loved and that, um, and that that love can transform them into someone who, you know, isn't perfect, but who can love their neighbor. Um, that's a long road. It's a long road from where we are. Like in the words of Jesus, right? The, the, the one who's forgiven much loves much. And yeah. the one who's forgiven little loves little. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. So part of the, the, it sounds like what you're saying, part of the journey for white people is, is there's, in, in, that there's a liberative thing in receiving the forgiveness for being in this legacy that actually makes for real human flourishing. Yeah. It makes the gospel come alive. Um, I mean, I understand that white people don't want to face a lot of this stuff. Uh, it's it's painful, but but my God, once you face it and realize that that God can even forgive that, you know that that even a white person can be saved. Uh, well, that's a big God, <laughs> you know. <I> can, <laughs> that's uh, what you should have called called the book. Even white people can be saved. No, that's a big God. <laughs> That God can do anything. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You, you. I mean, you. Again, you. You. You're a son of the South. You. Your family members, friends. I'm sure who are Donald Trump voters yeah. and who are pretty. You're certainly probably not uh, signing up to do moral Mondays with you every. <laughs> I mean, how does? Uh, do Do you have old friends for whom you're? work and passion is a, a source of tension? I mean, how do you negotiate friends who grew up in the same legacy you did, who, who have not gone on that journey with you and yet are still a part of your life? Like, how do those relationships work? Well, there's nothing that a conservative Southern Christian uh, hates worse than uh, ideological liberalism. You know, what, <laughs> what, what they see is, you know, just a kind of... Um, uh, ideas and usually ideas that are associated with ivory towers and, you know, people who live in big cities and don't live life like them. So, um, so frankly, um, what I've talked to my sisters and brothers about, um, who continue to be, you know, very much in the camp of Trump and the, you know, religious right and other things, uh, is the people I know, you know, and introduce them to the people I know. I mean, I, I'm not trying to, convince anybody to be a, a liberal, you know, it's, this is not ideological for me. Um, I, I, I want, I want somebody to know, you know, Pastor Jose Chicas, who's been living in sanctuary with us since last June, because even though he's lived his, you know, whole adult life in the United States, 32 years, raised all his kids here, pastors here is about the most conservative evangelical you'll ever meet. Um, the first time he went to his annual appointment with ICE after Trump took office, uh, they told him, you got to leave this country in three months. And um, uh, so, you know, here's a family that's been ripped apart by a policy decision. And, um, and, you know, the kind of person who I think most anybody 
would like if they got to know him. Um, I, I want to talk about it in terms of how people are impacted. Um, and I want, you know, people who, I'm not trying to get conservative people to stop being conservative. I'm trying to uh, help conservatives and liberals and anybody else uh, become more human and to not let their ideologies get in the way of, uh, of of being a human being and, you know, as a Christian of, of following Jesus. In the book, you tell the story about Franklin Graham where he's some black pastors were kind of concerned about some statements he made yeah. about Obama's faith. And he invited them to kind of meet with him and he was kind of patronizing to them. Uh, and he's one of many prominent evangelical leaders who've you know, kept, who've, who've support Trump, who've, you know, who seem to have some access and, you know, communication with him. If you could sit down and tell Donald Trump about Jesus, what, what, what would you say? Like, how would you, how, what, what would you think is important that, that, that he hurt? I mean, cause he's obviously the least religious president I can remember in my lifetime. I yeah. mean, so well, he's got a lot of religious people talking to him though. I mean, what would you say? Well, I'd tell him what I learned about Jesus in the second chapter of Ephesians when Paul says, Jesus himself is our peace for he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and in his flesh has made one new humanity possible so that, Paul says, so that we can be reconciled to God. Um, I want, just as much as any evangelical, I want Donald Trump and everybody else to have a personal relationship with Jesus. We are alienated from God, and we need to be reconciled to God. St. Paul convinced me that that's impossible without becoming part of the new humanity that was you know, divided by all these things we've inherited, until we can become one with people across these dividing lines in in this new humanity that Christ makes possible. There's no way to know God. So um, so that's what I'd want to say that um, that this isn't just about you know partisan politics. This is about whether we can hear and know people we've been divided from in order to know God. Ephesians two, making humanity great again. <laughs> <laughs> well. I think that's what God's up to. You, you, it's, you, in your discussion of of Martin Luther King in the book, you talk about how King, and, and this is, it, it, it is interesting that not many people, we kind of romanticize King now, but you know, he was kicked out of the largest black institution, right? The National Baptist Convention. I mean, he was for yeah. being too radical, yeah. uh, you know, like he's, he was a guy that 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 really was an edgy figure, and you talk about how, like how. Jesus, when he's on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross, is anointed by the woman at Bethany, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, and, and he says, you know, wherever I am, you know, wherever the story is told, they're going to talk about you. Yeah. And you talk about how she really saw his kingship mm-hmm. when it didn't look like, it, it just like some prophetic people saw a witness to that kingship in King. Yeah. And, and how what King and Jesus share is this sort of, this deep misunderstanding mm-hmm. of who they were and this beautiful anointing picture that you know and it it seems it seems only sometimes the marginal right those who really you know as as, uh, howard thurman says have their backs against the wall can see him for who he is yeah yeah we we do to king what we've done to jesus you know we um we recreate them in the image of uh you know, what we think is good and right. It, it always makes me think of that story, Clarence Jordan, who was a, you know, a Southern radical, um, a Southern Baptist who was, you know, starting an interracial community back in the 1940s. Um, uh, he visited 
what do you call it, a big steeple church one time in one of the big cities, and uh, the the pastor wanted to show him around the building, and he said he uh, he got outside and pointed up to the top of the steeple. He said, "You you wouldn't believe it, but that cross on the top of that steeple cost us ten thousand dollars." And uh, Jordan said, "It's a shame, you know. There was a time when you could get one for free, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, I think, uh, it, but but you know, you can understand that we would do that to King when we did it to Jesus. We take um, we take this uh, radical alternative that God wants to offer us, and we uh, turn it into something that uh, you know is domesticated and makes sense in our world, and and so it's a constant." I think it's a constant challenge of um, of the movement and the work for truth to um, to unearth and to rediscover what uh, what it's really about to reconstruct the gospel, which I think is the task that we're called to if we want to follow Jesus. You're you're part of, I mean, a concrete part of that reconstruction for you is 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 the work of Moral Mondays and some of this the fusion politics that's going on in direct action state houses, right? And and if somebody wants to get involved in what you and Reverend Barber are doing in this fusion movement across the country, how what do they do? I mean, how do they how do they become part of this new politics that you guys are about forming and sustaining? Well, make a commitment. First of all, make a commitment to be part of uh, the fusion coalition that is building in your community uh, of people who are willing to uh, come together across issue areas, across you know various dividing lines to, to really try to be part of this new humanity together and to take that in the public square. And you can do that very concretely. Uh, you can, you know, make that commitment public and, and connect with those people by going to poorpeoplescampaign.org, putting in your contact information and your zip code specifically because there's state coordinating committees in 30 states now. And once they have your contact information, they're, they're reaching out and, uh, and asking people, you know, what kind of interests and gifts they bring to the movement and how they can plug in. So, um, so I mean, this is a a movement of thousands of people uh, all across the country, and uh, we're inviting people to plug in in their states where they are. Jonathan, thanks for your work, and thanks for the book uh, "Reconstructing the Gospel." It's uh, it's a great read, and thank you for yeah casting some hope in a time when we sure do need it in this country. <laughs> hey, it's good to talk. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Jonathan for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Reconstructing the Gospel. And thanks to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.